Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic. Today I'm going to be talking to Matthew Asprey-Gear. He is the author of two books about cinema, which we'll be discussing, Mosby Confidential, Arthur Penn's Night Moves and the Rise of the Neo-Noir, and At the End of the Street in the Shadow, Orson Welles and the City. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to like, subscribe, and spread the word as far and wide as you can. Sing it from the rooftops, if need be, or just broadcast it on ham radio, if you wish. You can follow me on Twitter, Dr. John T, at Dr. John T, sorry, at Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Sound did a issue very recently. I'm not sure if you uh, got the opportunity to see it, but of like hidden heroes of the film industry. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to contribute any names that I felt would be. And I, I immediately thought, oh, Alan Sharp is a, a, an example of somebody that maybe the name doesn't ring many bells, but has has contributed quite quite significantly to film from the last in the last few decades. And uh, I got a reply back saying, you're the fifth person to to suggest Alan Sharp. So I was thinking, oh, maybe not that hidden to a certain group of people, certainly. And when I read your book, the thing that I that struck me immediately was it, Alan Sharp seemed to be very much your entry point into into Night Moves, the, the book, that, the film, sorry, that the book covers. Well, I mean, what I discovered looking into the history of of how night moves came to be made is the extent to which it really was a collaboration between the the, the screenwriter Alan Sharp and the the director Arthur Penn, and uh, more so than maybe I initially suspected. I mean, we do always, I guess, the auteur theory has been so influential, and we we do tend to attribute you know authorship of films to their directors, and the screenwriters do tend to get forgotten. But looking at the project, I realized, yeah, Alan Sharp really brought his own distinct vision to the genre of the detective story. And uh, he had very specific 
I think, motivations for what he wanted to achieve as a screenwriter, and not just in, in on this project, Night Moves, but on all of the films he was writing in that period. And so the more I looked into the how it was made, I realized it was a collaboration. It was very much, a, I guess, a combative collaboration. It ultimately turned out to be that way. Two artists who, you know, were not necessarily on the same page in every respect. Uh, they had very different outlooks on things, political outlooks, I think, and just generally like attitudes towards towards the world. So it was a really unusual collaboration, but I definitely started to discover the extent to which Alan Sharp really was the co-author of this film uh, with Arthur Penn. Yeah, so uh, the book, as I started to write the book, I realized it was the story of Alan Sharp and his entry into Hollywood in the early 70s. It's really remarkable arrival as a screenwriter and in tandem with the story of Arthur Penn who was going through his own career crisis at the same time so I sort of and I started to see the you know the the parallels in their lives and also the very different backgrounds they were coming from and how this sort of collided on this project and the iron, ironic result of the of, of the collaboration was the film I think is the best thing either of them worked on even though neither of them were happy with the final result. Yeah, that's that's a that was a really weird irony uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the book is you, you get this sense that they're but let's let's not go too far too yeah. too far too fast um for for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with with this period let let shall we set the scene a little bit who, sure who was alan sharp and and where does night moves fit in his career well alan sharp uh, was a scottish writer he was born in 1934 in Greenock, which is a, a town on the Clyde River. It was historically a shipbuilding town, not too far from Glasgow, where I'm right, I am right now. And Sharp had grown up, I mean, he was adopted as a, as a baby and grew up with this very stern religious family. And then ultimately he found out as a teenager that he was adopted. And this kind of set him off on this quest to discover who his real parents were. And he did contact his mother his birth mother, but his father had died by this time. Uh, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm setting that background because I think it is so central to Night Moves. I mean, the whole search for the missing parent or the parent who abandoned you. I mean, that's really the theme of the movie, I think. Um, but anyway, he, he had a really strange career trajectory as a writer. I mean, he was very working class at a time when uh, there was not a great deal of access uh, to the mainstream media by working class people in Britain, certainly in Scotland. And, but he, he wound up actually first making his mark in British television, writing uh, television plays and also radio plays uh, for the BBC. And so that was his activity in the early sixties. Uh, but then he shifted his focus to writing and publishing uh, novels. And he published two novels in the mid sixties. Uh, and they're very autobiographical novels uh, about his youth in Greenock, and they're all about the town of Greenock. They're very, I mean, I'm a huge fan of his work as a screenwriter. I don't really like the novels that much. I sort of feel the novels... Yeah, you, you give them short shrift <laughs> in the book, don't you? <laughs> I mean, they have their advocates, but, uh, and they were very popular at the time that they were published, which is maybe slightly unusual because they're very kind of experimental literary novels. Mm. I, li I like experimental literary novels, don't get me wrong. But this one, these ones are, uh, I mean, to me, they're, they're pretty dated and very much of the period. So, but what happened was, so he, he published, published these two novels, uh, Green Tree and Giddy and The Wind Shifts, and uh, they were very successful commercially as well as critically, um, I think because of their sex content. I mean, they're quite, I, it was right after Lady Shadley's Lover had been uh, published by Penguin, you know, the, the censorship trials were over, it was possible now to be much more explicit with uh, language uh, in fiction. And I think he kind of was just in the right place at the right time. The book that he, the first book he wrote sort of fit the mood. People wanted to read these, you know, very modernist novels. I mean, it's very much, I think, indebted to Joyce and Lawrence. And uh, so he, he made uh, a big splash as a novelist and he sold the rights to these books to all these different international markets. They were getting translated. Um, and then at a certain point, uh, he shifted his career focus again which is another remarkable thing, and started writing genre screenplays uh, on spec. So he started writing westerns and he started writing crime stories. And in the space of about four years, starting in 1971, uh, five of his original screenplays were filmed, 
uh, and released all by different directors, just back to back. He 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 wrote and saw all these projects uh, realized, which is pretty remarkable. Um, but he worked uh, with directors like Robert Aldrich, who directed Ulzana's Raid. So he he did work with the old guard to to an extent in terms of older Hollywood directors. He worked with John Huston very briefly. And John Huston was a hero of, of Alan Sharps. Alan Sharps was schooled in the films of Huston and Bogart, you know, as we'll see when we start to talk about Night Moves. But uh, Huston was hired to direct uh, The Last Run, which is a screenplay that was shot in Spain. Uh, it's about a, a kind of uh, a driver for the mob, played by George C. Scott. But after about a month's shooting, uh, Huston got fired or he resigned and he was replaced by Richard Fleischer. So it wasn't a very happy uh, collaboration for Sharp. Um, but, and yeah, then there were younger directors, uh, very new Hollywood directors like Peter Fonda, who just had a huge success uh, appearing in uh, Easy Rider. He got, he became enamored of a screenplay that Sharp had written called The Hired Hand. So he produced that as his first feature as a director. Yeah, so all this is going on in a very, very concentrated period of time. And, uh, you know, this is Hollywood in the early 70s, which is a kind of golden age for people who love the gloomiest side of things. I mean, because these, this is a period of uh, films where suddenly we start seeing all these movies about failure in, in, in American life. And, and Alan Sharp was somebody who I think pretty constitutionally was very fatalistic. He took a very bleak view of things and human relationships. He's very interested in, in human relationships, but uh, the story is very rarely ended happily. In fact, in all these screenplays he was writing, it's, it's almost, I think in every single screenplay, the, uh, the lead character dies of a gunshot, you know, mm. it's just like, it always ends unhappily. Um, and he was just like in the right place at the right time with, you know, tremendous talent and uh, trem a tremendous gift. And he, he created a great deal of buzz and enthusiasm for the work that he was writing. So he had this re remarkable entry into the film business, having established himself as a very successful novelist. Yeah. And he wrote Westerns and crime films. And then having produced these films. The fifth of these uh, original screenplays was what became Night Moves. And that's when Arthur Penn uh, signed on. And, you know, really when the deal was made to make Night Moves, the script wasn't really finished. And so they, they kind of had to steer it towards the final form that it had. Mm. But that's Alan Sharp. And then he did go on to a pretty successful career and certainly financially successful career writing uh, television movies and uh, working as a script doctor. And he did in, in later years write Rob Roy. And so he, he had a pretty long career, but this was just a very concentrated period in the early 70s where all of these original screenplays got made. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the career of someone like William Goldman or, or Robert mm -hmm. Town or any of those big, I mean, numerically, the actual number of screenplays that they produce and actually get on the screen mm -hmm. are, are not that many, you know, not nowhere near the number that a, a productive director will, will get will get made. I think, I mean, screenwriters, working screenwriters in Hollywood always wind up writing about three or four times as many scripts as actually get produced. And that's certainly mm -hmm. true of Alan Sharp as well. I mean, you know, it's, it's in the scheme of things, it's not that expensive to commission a writer to write a script, um, but it's a lot more difficult to get the, the money to actually produce a film. And so, yeah, I mean, Sharp, there are a lot of unfilmed screenplays in the Sharp archives. So he did, he was a consistently working screenwriter for his whole career. Um, and he, as I said, he brought a lot of TV movies and that, that's a very sort of disposable, ephemeral format to work in, you know, the, t the movie of the week on TV. But uh, yeah, so he's, it was kind of, he did have a consistent career over a long period, but uh, yeah, it was really the early, the first half of the seventies where we got all these original sharp films uh, made. What about that shift that you you sort of alluded to as well? I mean, he shifts from being a novelist to a screenwriter, mm -hmm. which is one thing. But he doesn't write screenplays about you know Greenock. He writes no. screenplays that are aware. And I've seen Ozana's Raid and uh, The Hired Hand. Mm -hmm. And if you, if nobody told you this screenwriter is a Scottish uh, mm -hmm. writer, you you would you'd never guess it. They they, they 
they master the idiom, you know. The well, he said. I mean, you know, I, I think there's some truth in the fact that uh, Hollywood and and American culture is a pretty international culture. He'd grown up in in Scotland, going to the movies all the time and seeing these Bogart films and seeing westerns, the films of John Ford and so on. So he felt, I think, very fluent in that language that cultural language and for him i mean he said you know growing up where he had grown up not the most ex- you know exciting place in the world and pretty gloomy at times and kind of poverty uh you know that the films that he saw as a child kind of gave him a sense of grandeur that didn't exist in his own life so but i think it was the best decision he could have made to begin writing these hollywood genre screenplays because I mean, he he obviously had a very autobiographical impulse as a novelist and, you know, writing about his hometown and, you know, he had a very complicated personal life as well, romantic mm. life. And he wanted to get, I think, a lot of that on the page. But by writing genre screenplays, I think it was, apart from the fact that I think he played to his strengths. I mean, he wrote great dialogue. He wrote very taut action sequences and, you know, he was very good at structuring his screenplays. Um, and it meant that the very the kind of purple prose that he specialized in as a novelist just had to go out the window. So I think he was playing to his strengths, but also uh, by removing himself a little bit from this nakedly autobiographical content, uh, it still allowed him to explore the themes that he was interested in about men and women and so on, but in a sort of different context. And I think that all was very beneficial and his writing suddenly kind of came alive. Yeah, kind of tragic masculinity, romantic yeah. masculinity, you know. Um, That's um, it. I mean, he was he was somebody, I think, uh, he was very interested in masculinity. He was very interested in the limits of the male experience, and he's very interested in women. Uh, and I don't just mean romantically interested in women. He was interested right. in women, you know, as people. And in fact, the when in the process of researching my book and I interviewed the actresses who'd worked on Night Moves, they were both, uh, the two main actresses were both, you know, they remembered being so impressed by his insight as a male writer into the female experience and that he wrote female characters, which were very unconventional for that time. So they were extremely excited to work on the project because you didn't see that type of writing for women actors too much. And so moving on to Arthur Penn, uh, mm-hmm. Penn at this this point has already established himself as both a TV and um, yep. film director and also on Broadway, I think. Mm-hmm. He's already done Bonnie and Clyde. He's all, uh, Before that, he did The Left-Handed Gun with Paul Newman. So where is he, at what point is he in his career now that, that Night Moves comes along? Well, Penn, you know, should have been kind of at the top of the world. I mean, he'd... Yeah, as you say, he'd had a career directing TV in New York, and then he'd come to Hollywood and, you know, he made a bunch of films in the late 50s through the 60s, but, you know, really culminating in Bonnie and Clyde, which, you know, was a major film in the culture. I mean, it was very new type of film in terms of its uh, depiction of violence, but it was an exciting film. It seemed to take on board the influence of the French New Wave. So it definitely seemed to represent a new type of film. And then, but the thing is actually... Penn at this particular point that when he took on the Night Moves project personally, according to the interviews that he gave and, you know, he was in a very dark place. Uh, He was, I think, suffering from pretty uh, serious depression at one point. He had, uh, he directed Little Big Man in 1970, which was a, a kind of revisionist Western with Dustin Hoffman. And I think he found that whole process very exhausting, but more than anything, I think politically, and he was very closely uh, aligned with civil rights movement and Democratic Party. Uh, I think the Kennedy assassinations had been very traumatic and he'd known both the Kennedy brothers. And so I think there was a kind of culmination of uh, just traumatic experiences. And even I think more directly uh, traumatic was uh, the fact that he was in Munich in 1972 at the Olympics uh, making a documentary when the... Uh, terrorist uh, incident occurred where the Israeli athletes were murdered and he found he was like right in the middle of all that uh, you know that experience so I think it was just a kind of mounting traumatic experiences for him so he he went into a pretty dark place and uh, hadn't really worked on a feature between I mean after Little Big Man you know up until he took on board Night Moves he really hadn't worked except on that documentary about the Olympics so he was uh, he kind of been out of it a little while 
I think he was spending time with his family and teaching. But uh, so this was kind of a return to active filmmaking for him when he took on uh, the Nightmares project. But yeah. the, the sort of the third third figure as well that you sort of mention as you as you sort of build up at the beginning at very beginning of the book is mm-hmm. Gene Hackman, who obviously is the star of the film. If if star is the right word for someone like Gene Hackman, because he's such a that it seems slightly antithetical to to his persona, the idea of star. Um, how did he get on board and uh, and how important was his contribution here? Well, I mean, he'd worked with Penn on Bonnie and Clyde. He had a supporting role in Bonnie and Clyde. And that had actually been the film, which had made him into a name as a character actor, I think. But uh, then he did The French Connection in 71, which, you know, won him an Oscar and he became a leading man, a big star. And so he was really bankable star at this point even though as you say he was not in any way the kind of conventional Steve McQueen or Paul Newman type star you know he was really a character actor who had been elevated into that leading man status a really truly great actor so I presume that uh, I mean I don't know the exact details of how, how Hackman got the role but I presume you know he, he had this established association with Penn I don't think it was something that Sharp expected that casting Mm. Um, but it worked out being uh, just a tremendously good choice for this role, particularly, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a character, the character in Night Moves is a kind of macho football player, somebody who very old fashioned in his mentality in many ways. And, uh, but he's got a lot of inner turmoil and, and Hackman's speciality is just, he's able to communicate I guess, a kind of emotional turmoil without having to really do anything very overt. There's just so much going on inside that's evident to the viewer. And uh, so he was a very quiet actor in many ways. And uh, yeah, so it was just perfect casting, uh, I think, for this very complicated role. Yeah, he just has one of those faces that even at rest seems to tell you everything you need to mm-hmm. know. So he, he 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 can do an absolute minimum and still convey very complex states of mind, as you as you as you said. And what about you? How did you? How did you? So we've got Hackman, we've got Penn, we've got Sharp. How did you get to to night moves? What was the move that got you? Which, by the way, you you uh, pointed out it was called originally something like what is it, the Dark Tower or the Dark Tower? Yeah, that was yeah. the that was the title actually until. I mean, post-production when, I mean, I think the reason the title got changed was uh, in 74, The Towering Inferno was released. Mm. And Mm. I think it was an attempt to kind of, they didn't want any sort of name confusion involved. So they they renamed it Night Moves with the pun on night. Yeah. How did I get involved? Well, I mean, I'd I'd just written a book about Orson Welles, which I think we want to talk about. But, you know, having done this very big project where I had to kind of take on board the entire filmography of of Wells, uh, I thought, well, it'd be nice to do a kind of more restricted research project, like focus on one film. And Night Moves was a film that I had seen several times. And every time I saw it, I got more intrigued by it. It seemed to be more resonant. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that that's, I guess, reaction to it. It seems to be something that kind of lingers in the memory and you start to get a little, I started to get a little sort of obsessed with it and try to figure out, well, exactly why is this film so compelling? But also it hadn't really been, you know, the making of the film wasn't really that well known. And the film itself was only really restricted to a cult audience and maybe still is. But so I started looking into the background and I read, uh, I read an interview with Alan Sharp, actually, and I think that was the catalyst to actually do the book because I found this interview with Sharp uh, so compelling and full of insights into the writing process and the filmmaking process. And, you know, I was so impressed by his particular angle on on the subjects, uh, the themes of this story. Uh, so I, I guess in a way the book was an attempt to kind of explore all of the provocative things that he had, had said and see if take them further. So, yeah. And then, and then I, I, I also just realized it's a really good story, you know, how this film came to be made and the, the weird circumstance that, you know, neither the writer the, nor the director were happy with the way it turned out, even if I think it's, you know, their best, their best work on either side. Yeah. And, uh, and it's also become, you know, quite 
recognized uh in in critical circles as as uh, one of those classics of 70s cinema that um mm-hmm. you know to stand up at, beside the conversation or parallax view or or any of those other sort of grandees i mean my first experience uh, uh, my first knowledge of the film came from reading a book. I'm, I forget the name of the author now. Maybe you can help me out. It's the Cinema of Loneliness. Yeah, yeah. Is it Kolka? Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it's a survey of, I think, six sort of 70s directors, mm-hmm. including Kubrick, Penn, Scorsese, and all the way through. It was, it was you know, I, I read about it before I saw it, and I read about it very much in the context of this is an American new cinema and it's influenced by the new wave and Mickey one and things like that. So um, when I actually sat down and saw it, I, I, I was primed to, to sort of take it seriously, I suppose, but I also just really enjoyed it as a really good piece of genre filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It, it is very much uh, in line with those other films you mentioned. It, it's, it's about, uh, yeah, as you say, alone, that's a good, good term to use in relation to it's about loneliness it's about this inability of this main character to communicate with his wife and try or he's trying to and yeah there was this period when it was possible to explore these themes in a way without that they didn't have to resolve in any sort of traditionally satisfactory way and i mean that's certainly true of night moves uh there's a lot of unresolved questions about the film but it's it is a genre film and you know it was released as a genre film and i think that's one reason why it never really uh, made a big splash initially because people expect certain things out of a piece of genre f- like like night moves they expect it to you know tick the boxes for a private detective film uh which it doesn't entirely do and uh, it doesn't have a bullet style car chase or a... no you know, or a sort of set piece that, but these sort of, um, these sort of detective movies seem to be really popular at the time. And not popular mm-hmm. in, I mean, popular more with directors maybe than with audiences in the sense that you, you mentioned as well in the book that you've got the, the, the long goodbye mm-hmm. and uh, Chinatown. I think it's a, a way that history concertinas as well, because we look, uh, we think of the seventies as extremely separate from the forties and the fifties mm-hmm. film noir, but they're only, you know, it's only twenty years separate nineteen seventy from nineteen fifty, and it's Bogart isn't isn't dead for that long. I think you, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things I found great in the book is you just list James Dean died this year, Marilyn Monroe this year, Humphrey Bogart was maybe the first to go. And you just sort of think, yeah, God, yeah, that's that's the equivalent of us losing David Bowie and you mm-hmm. know, one after the other. How how strange that must have been at the time as well. Yeah, I know it wasn't that long, but uh, that like not no not many years had passed. However, I think American sensibility had entirely changed, uh, and you know, culture had entirely changed in the '60s. And I mean, you look at American Graffiti, which is released in '73, and it's about 1962. And so it's a it's a, a period film about only nine years earlier. So the equivalent <laughs> we're talking in 2021. It's not, you know, it's like yeah. what was happening back, you know, in 2012. Not much different, you would think. <laughs> Maybe it was a lot different. But I think there was this sense of, oh, America had transformed and uh, in, in every way. And there was a lot of nostalgia for the past, which was manifesting itself in a lot of films being being made like Last Picture Show and American Graffiti and The Sting and The Way We Were. And so all these films are coming out in the early 70s, either period films or films like What's Up, Doc, another Bogdanovich film, which is, you know, screwball comedy, 30s style comedy. So it was, I think partly that was the, the affection that was that was present in that time for movies of the golden age of Hollywood uh, was a result of television because suddenly old movies were on TV, like, Mm. What had been a very ephemeral thing was suddenly, oh, you could you can go and watch old Bogart movies again on TV. And so there was this growing fondness in the uh, among the American public for old movies uh, because they were suddenly accessible again. And the detective films that started to emerge in the 70s, really in the late 60s and into the 70s, um, a lot of them are kind of pastiche films. You know, they're very, you know, they're winking at you. Uh, look at us do the old Bogart number and you know, but some of the lesser detective films of the 70s, I think, are very much just kind of nostalgia exercises. 
like Farewell My Lovely came out came out around the same time as Night Moves and with Robert Mitchum. And it's very much, I mean, it's not a bad film, but it's not anything particularly uh, profound because it's all about just aping the style of those movies, the, the visual mm. iconography, the fedoras, the trench coats, you know, and, and people obviously took a lot of pleasure. The audiences took a lot of pleasure in, in you know, seeing contemporary revivals of that old style and even and, seeing robert mitchum again you know he's, yeah he's, exactly it's, you know it's, Bert lancaster would do a similar thing in atlantic city to maybe maybe uh -huh. a bit more depressing yeah. effect because it wasn't such it wasn't as if so much time had passed that those actors were not still around i mean yeah. most of the 40s actors were still alive and still many cases working so it was easy to get a mitchum to do that but and you know there's other interesting detective films like chinatown which sort of starts as a pastiche of the old the old detective story uh, but then it becomes something much greater than that i mean i think and i this is something it had common in common with night moves and the long goodbye you sort of begin the movie and it's like okay this is a kind of nostalgic genre exercise let's enjoy the pastiche qualities of this detective film but then it actually winds up making the case that no this genre is actually a very valid genre to explore issues in the contemporary world I mean, obviously, Chinatown's set in the 30s, but I think it is in many ways also about the era of Watergate, you know? And so, yeah, the detective films kind of had made a comeback, and Night Moves is in the middle of that, but it, I don't think it satisfied the people who wanted to have a nostalgic good time. And more than anything, I think, you know, timing is so central to the success of any film. Night Moves came out in the summer of 75. It's always, you know, people bring up the fact that it came out you know, within a few weeks of Jaws and Jaws was the biggest film of all time and a very different kind of movie. But I also think the fact that it came out right around the same time as two other Gene Hackman movies, you know, French Connection 2 came out the same summer as did uh, his Western uh, Bite the Bullet. And so if you're a Gene Hackman fan and you're looking at what's on at the cinema, you have other other op options. And I think Night Moves kind of just fell through the cracks. The reviews were not that great because I think it really is a film that gains so much on the second, third, or, you know, 20th viewing. And, uh, 20th so, in your case. <laughs> yeah, I haven't counted, but it's been a few times. I imagine. So, yeah, um, it's one of those films that, yeah, and, and you mentioned also films like uh, Parallax View and The Conversation. I think The Conversation, although it was well-reviewed and did well at Cannes, I mean, it, that was not really celebrated as one of the great films of the period at the time. I mean, Godfather was and Godfather 2, but uh, a lot of the films we, we are now looking at more with, with that celebration um, from that period at the time there were so many films being released and they just kind of came and went in many cases you know mm. so and nightmares was one of them yeah my, my perception of con the conversation was was the idea um that it was kind of almost like what coppola doing one for himself you know he'd, he'd mm -hmm. done you know the godfather for the studio and he got the conversation then godfather part two and then apocalypse now was almost was a sort of mix of one for himself one for the studio but yeah no i, I absolutely accept that it wasn't it is um it has definitely taken a complete revaluation i think mm -hmm. um not that it was ever hated just that it was as you say it was just a small film this sort of oddity the figure of the detective kind of changes as well and and I think mm -hmm. one of the things that's interesting with Gene Hackman in the in the in Night Moves is that, and maybe I was wondering whether this might have something to do with it not fulfilling all those generic expectations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I remember Harrison Ford 
uh, criticizing Blade Runner because he I play a detective who does no detecting, and sort of Gene Hackman himself in Night Moves says, you know, I didn't I didn't solve mm-hmm. anything. I just it fell on top of me. You know, do you think that that idea of a detective as sort of a powerful male, well, the knight of the title, as mm-hmm. you say, sort of being reduced to this kind of victim of circumstance? I think that was Sharp's interest in uh, writing this film, and one of the reasons why it the the outcome was a bit contentious between him and Penn. But I mean, Sharp, he and we loved Bogart films. And Bogart had, you know, in Maltese Falcon and Big Sleep, established uh, on screen the kind of model of the, you know, the the masterful detective who was a kind of macho and uh, who was always in control of every situation and then solved the case. It's sort of like this model of the hero. I think Bogart certainly had introduced this new type of screen hero with Sam Spade in Maltese Falcon. But And although Sharp loved those movies, I think when he came to write his own detective story in the 70s, he was very interested in kind of probing and interrogating the limitations of that kind of hero. And that's in really in all of his screenplays of the early 70s he was you know really interested in in you know breaking down that male hero and looking at the limitations so uh in his screenplay uh for night moves uh the the main character is he was an ex-football player he's a homophobe and that was an aspect of the script that was toned down quite significantly by the final cut you know and his his he he acts essentially as a bogart style private detective hero he goes around being kind of aggressively masculine and he also falls in with the uh the stunt director who's this like him a kind of macho guy you know uses his fists before his brain and uh, i think uh, sharp's intention was to show that that understanding of the world that understanding of men and women was very limiting that things were much more the world was a much more complicated place than uh, you know the Maltese falcon would in, indicate and so the fact that uh, harry mosby's wife is cheating on him with this guy who you know isn't kind of clearly an intellectual uh, he's and he's also somebody physically very unimposing he's a guy who walks with a cane i mean i think this totally pulls the the rug out from underneath Mosby. He cannot understand how that could be the case. How, well, this woman has left him, who's a very kind of aggressively physical guy, for somebody he doesn't understand. And he finds that very, very threatening. Um, and that's, I think, uh, that was Sharp's intention. He wanted to show that, you know, you can't you can't really be in the world in that way anymore and expect everything to work out uh so that's why mosby winds up not solving this case he's kind of totally befuddled by uh what he discovers but sharp was very much interested in in pointing out the limitations of that kind of masculine hero the film pulls back a little bit from that criticism for several reasons i think partly the casting of hackman as great as it is i think i don't know necessarily that was exactly what sharp had in mind for the character i think he was thinking of a more simplistic kind of macho hero mm-hmm. um and hackman because he is so much obvious sensitivity you know even if it's not expressed uh, it makes for a great performance but maybe it blunts a little bit what sharp was intending to get across uh, and also the fact that pen you know in the editing he did make the film and cut it so that these negative qualities of uh, mosby were very evident but you know then he's according to sharp Penn sort of chickened out at the last mm. hurdle and started to maybe pull pull certain things out. As I said, there were you know, the homophobia of the main character was more pronounced, and that that a lot of that was kind of cut back because they tried to make uh, Mosby into a more sympathetic and less sort of just bluntly macho kind of meathead character i think that was all to the good i think what we wound up with is is an excellent film i think sharp was going for something quite extreme uh he really wanted to kind of break apart the genre and uh all of the kind of founding myths of the detective story but uh and pen had his own sensitivity and sort of managed to kind of find a way to bring back some of the extreme elements uh and humanize it actually a little bit more i think yeah, I get the feeling that Penn, as as a director of drama, you know, had mm-hmm. always had his eyes on 
allowing the audience to have a finger hold on the character and not, yeah. you know, not just make someone who's so dislikable that people end up going, well, I, I don't care what happens to this guy. Yeah. I mean, Hackman had played, he, he had, he was one of those great actors who could play a really quite pretty bad character, like pretty bad guy. And you'd still be on his side. I mean, French connection. I mean, Popeye Doyle is, you know, he's, overtly racist and his uh he was kind of a thug uh, there's no doubt about that but hackman's so charismatic that you don't care you follow him but uh yeah so it's 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 a little it's kind of a matter of trade-offs in the editing room i think trying to find the right balance uh yeah and sharp sharp was i think disappointed because he wanted to make a pretty extreme statement and mm. pen ultimately decided to go a slightly different way i saw hackman in a, a western with oliver reed and a hunting party that's right yeah and he plays a ferocious misogynist in that so mm -hmm. i don't get the feeling that it was anything in hackman sort of wanting to protect his reputation or anything in terms of how oh, no. some actors might have done you know some actors might have said this is too dark for me or well, according to sharp i mean penn showed the a rough cut of the film to his friends in hollywood and to guys like jack nicholson and uh warren Beatty and uh i think terence malick was there and robert town i think was there who'd written uh, chinatown and their response was you know you gotta tweak this because the character is so unlikable and and pen you know pen ultimately decided that advice was good and i'm of course just i'm this is sharp's telling of this right. scenario and you pen didn't really speak about it uh, the decision making but uh sharp i think sort of sort of felt like pen had gone and hung out with his with his macho friends and they were all kind of offended by the film so they told him to change it and he kind of went along with that but yeah I mean, so it, that, that sharp side of the story, and I don't know that that's the full story. Yeah, and you, yeah, you made that clear. But I mean, I suppose like the end of Night Moves, where you're not quite sure what the the conclusion is, but it, it's it's very far from a happy ending. I, that that reflects the sort of ending of the of uh, the production of the movie as well, with with this <laughs> sort of sense of uncertainty and uh, and people yeah. walking away, not not particularly happy with what they've done, even though, as you say, it's something of a modern classic. It's not a happy ending, that's the thing. I mean, nobody's going to walk out of Night Moves thinking, wow, that's affirmed all my uh, prejudices <laughs> about the world. I mean, I think it's very provocative. It's, you know, it's a really dark film. But, I mean, Sharp wanted it darker. And, I mean, there's little things changed, like, uh, you you may remember towards the end of the film, there's a fist fight between uh, Hackman and uh, right. the, the guy down in the Keys, and it's very bloody kind of fist fight. I mean, in the script, uh, that guy dies from his injuries in the fight. And in, if you look closely at the scene as it's edited in, I mean, there's a line dubbed, Jennifer Warren dubs a line, which basically says he's still breathing, he's okay. And in the film, he, I mean, the original idea was that this guy died from that. Um, but clearly in the editing room, they're like, oh, this is so, can't we just like have him injured and just lying there unconscious because it's just unrelentingly horrible. He's beaten a man to death, yeah. you know, and the man isn't the main villain, you know. The no. man so yeah. yeah, there's lots of little things like that. And I think it's actually really well done this last minute surgery. I mean, if it's, and that's probably due to the expertise of Dee Dee Allen, who was the editor, such a brilliant collaborator for Penn. You know, it shows you how you cut one line here and there, and it does transform the meaning of the film or it transforms how we understand a character. Yeah, there was a lot of ADR done on um, Once Upon a Time in America as well, the, mm -hmm. the, the infamous sort of police academy cut that they made of uh, <laughs> the film. And, <laughs> and they would have sort of people saying, we're going to so-and-so's to pick up oh, so-and-so yeah. as a way of sort of clearing up what they thought was Leone's inept filmmaking. Yeah, what an amateur that Italian is. Sergio Leone <laughs> doesn't know how to tell a story. Listen, let's move from uh, Night Moves uh, to your first book, which mm -hmm. uh, is Orson Welles. Sorry, can you give me the full title? Um, it's a mouthful. It's yeah. at, at the End of the Street in the Shadow, uh, right. Orson Welles in the City. Okay, so I'm an I'm I'm not sure if there's an adjective for this Wellesian. I'm a I'm a huge Orson Welles fan, and I full disclosure, I haven't read your whole book. I've read your introduction and in the in the first chapter, but I, I'm definitely I'm definitely going to stick with it because it's a it's it's a really original look uh, at Wells. Uh, what what led you to this? Was this are you approaching film um, uh, via academia? Then are you are you looking at it as an academic? 
Well, I am. I mean, I'm I'm an academic, and that's my background. And I guess uh, as a Wells researcher, that's certainly how I started. And it is an academic book. Um, I mean, I I feel more now that I'm approaching film writing as a as a historian, and I mean as a critic as well, but less in a less sort of I guess directly academic way. Um, mm. But the the Wells book was the product of my own huge enthusiasm for Wells, and and the fact that the more you look the more you discover and more than anything the the excitement of going into the archives and looking at the huge mountains of paper that he left behind uh the unmade screenplays and the yeah all the documentation uh, the sketches uh so yeah i mean i approached the book it, it's a study of his body of work so it is i mean there's quite a number of books out there that look at the the films of orson wells of course but I decided to look at him as an urban filmmaker. I thought he mm. was a great kind of poet of the city. And so that's the sort of prism through which I would I, I decided to look at his his body of work. And you know, I mean he made films all over the world, uh, in many different cities. And sometimes he created the cities in studios and but I think he had uh, a lot to say about urban life and you know, not just in the twentieth century, but in the past as well. So it kind of just created a guiding structure to explore his work in a, from a different angle. I love the idea that you mentioned right at the beginning of the book where he's, you know, he traveled so much as a teenager with his father. And so he'd seen a lot of, uh, a lot of these cities already. So it was almost that whenever he went to visit a place as an adult, there was always a sense of nostalgia. He was always going back to a place he'd already been to. It's yeah, sort of yeah. the, the limits of being precocious, I guess, is uh, from then on, you're just bored. You're just retreading. Yeah, it was always like, wow, Budapest was over by 1923, you know? So <laughs> that was kind of a bit like, and he'd been there. Yeah, that's, uh, he had this remarkable childhood because he did travel all around and 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 was just a sponge so you know when he went to a place he he read everything he could about it he read the literature of the place uh you know and and he read the history of the place and and connected with it so he was an incredibly cosmopolitan artist so yeah by the time i mean I, he made magnificent ambersons when he was 26 and you know that's a film all about I mean, it's from the point of view of the nostalgist, you know, the way things mm. had used to be in the old days, which is a weird thing for a 25-year-old to be obsessed with. But I think that was just his sensibility. Uh, and it, it kind of creates this emotional logic for the characters, this sense of there had been a past where things had been better. You know, well, I, I think mean, he used that very artistically. I mean, even Citizen Kane, you have the, yeah. you know, you're, you're looking back on the life of a man, you know, where, where, did, where did it all go wrong? Rosebud is all is just the, an object that expresses nostalgia for something that's vanished. Yeah, that's why his films are so, uh, I think, so moving at times. I mean, Chai's at Midnight is even more so a film about... He was very interested in, in how uh, one historical era is kind of seceded by a later one. And, and he is interested in those characters who kind of are rendered obsolete by transformation. So that's the Magnificent mm -hmm. Ambersons, these, these old kind of aristocratic town folk who are just totally left behind by the march of progress and and chimes at midnight is all about full stuff going through the same thing he's somebody of the middle ages who suddenly finds himself in this you know new era where things are much colder and less organic and you know he found great poetry in in that that transformation and he i think my again my interest in urban images in Wells films is he found ways to explore how cities change and how that affects our lives. How, do, how did you originally sort of uh, land on Wells? What was your first sort of experience of, of Planet Wells? I mean, as a teenager, I, I, I got interested in Wells, you know, the old fashioned way of seeing Citizen Kane and uh, Ambersons. And I saw Journey into Fear pretty early and uh, on television and just being like, wow, this is this is great stuff. And I wasn't thinking about writing a book about the, about his work at that time, but I just got very enthused by Wells. And I think I also became, I mean, the whole story of Ambersons and the fact that it had been butchered by the studio and how he was a kind of, you know, a kind of martyr for, you know, all those artists, you know, he representative of all those artists who'd 
you know, struggled for freedom of expression. I found that very romantic. And But then weirdly, I actually saw Ephra Fake very early as well, which was at the time a film that was not really out there and not very accessible. It was on television in Australia in the 90s. And um, so that kind of, I mean, I, I equally love that, but I was also astonished this is the same director i mean because it's so different to those earlier films uh, and then i saw the touch of evil restoration when that was uh, put out in the late 90s uh, in the cinema and again it's just every time i saw a new wells film it was like well so there's so many sides to this artist and so that that was just an enthusiasm as as a teenager and in my early 20s and then when i ended up doing a phd i a chapter of my thesis was on touch of evil and uh, and it kind of just grew from there, this interest. And I was always so fascinated by the unreleased films, the unfinished films, the, you know, this idea that, okay, we, we've got a kind of glimpse of the surface of his work in the films that have been released, but clearly there is so much more kind of in the shadows behind him. And so when I finally got to the archives uh, in the US and also in Europe, yeah, it was, it was, it was like entering Xanadu and poking through all the, uh, the objects that were left behind. <laughs> what did you did you discover your personal rosebud in that? There's a lot of rosebuds in there. <laughs> it's uh, well, that's the other thing. I mean, I started to I ultimately come to specialize in looking at his unfinished, uh, unmade screenplays right. because there's dozens and dozens of scripts that he wrote for films that was never able to get the money to make. And you know, some of them have been looked at pretty extensively, but uh, there's a lot of others that nobody has ever really looked at in any depth and you know the kind of the undiscovered country for me so you, you would think there would be like a collected edition of wells's writing i mean from screenplays to essays to journalism you know like a proper authoritative yeah you know. i mean some i mean lots of stuff has been published but still it's only a very small proportion of all that exists and but i mean there's lots of practical challenges to that firstly legal issues i mean ownership of some of these screenplays uh, you know, is is pretty questionable. And uh, mm. there's been some un unmade screenplays have been published. A Big Brass Ring was published, and Cradle, Cradle Will Rock. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots and lots of stuff there. I think we're going to get a steady, a steady stream of Wells material appearing for the foreseeable future, because the interest is clearly just growing more and more. And there's no shortage of it. I talked to Mark Cousins a couple of years ago mm -hmm. when he released his documentary, um, uh, The Eyes of Orson Welles. And he was kind of saying that there was a period where there was a sort of dip in interest in Welles, that it was sort of maybe the propaganda that he sort of wasted his talent and was kind mm -hmm. of winning. And it became almost fashionable to sort of disparage his work. Uh, but but then it's you know the the backlash to the backlash has mm -hmm. arrived and and yeah we had his documentary we've had the other side of the wind was released mm -hmm. but and is on Netflix at the moment what did you think of that by the way what did you think of the other side of the wind I'm uh, extremely happy that this happened because you know anybody who's been into Wells for years this has been this sort of legend so firstly just to say the fact that it actually was achieved, I think, is remarkable considering all of the challenges of that. But looking at it as a film, I mean, I've been watching, I've watched it quite a lot of times. I've seen it quite a lot of times lately because uh, I'm teaching Wells at the moment online. And so I have to keep coming back to these films. And the more I see The Other Side of the Wind, I'm, I mean, it makes sense in the context of Wells' body of work and it really was a missing piece i think i have i mean i have my quibbles with certain aspects of how it was put together i think it's a little bit too long i think 10 minutes could be taken out of it um i won't speculate on what wells would have done uh because who you can't really know but i i honestly think uh you know it's a it's a real great achievement uh that this 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 occurred and i think it's a really i don't know if i'll say a great film on par with the best of his work, but I, I certainly think it's it's a very worthy addition to the to the filmography. So I was just ecstatic that this got done, and I I, I think the intentions of the uh, the people who reconstructed it were very honourable. So yeah. I had the opportunity to watch it at Venice when it was first uh, when it was premiered. Oh, wow. You could imagine the trepidation in that <laughs> screening room because there were you know it was a risky business. It's uh you know is, is this going to be is this going to actually detract from his reputation rather than... And I was just very pleased that, A, 
it was recognizably a film. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that was a given because I've seen a lot of sort of, as you say, a lot of un- oh, for instance, there's a new there's a new sort of documentary called Hopper Wells. I'm not sure if you've oh, yeah. had the opportunity to see that. Yeah. Whereas I think that is kind of not really a film, if you if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. It's it's you're you're kind of watching B-roll and it's fascinating and interesting. And for the completist, yes, definitely watch it. But if somebody's sitting down and they don't know much about the context or anything like that, it it's just not a it's not a film in that sense, I don't think. No, I, I, I was a bit, I, I objected a little bit to this whole director by Orson Welles credit. I think a better title, would, a better credit would be something like from the Orson Welles archives, because it is right. just fragments of, you know, it's, yeah, it's uh, takes, well, they're, they're just improvising. And there's this blurry line between an actual conversation that Welles and Hopper are having and Wells getting into the main character of the other side of the wind and provoking that at Dennis Hopper. And you, I mean, I think Hopper's making up a lot of stuff at times as well. So I mean, it's very interesting, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, other side of the wind, it was a big leap of faith. And I mean, I'd read the screenplay and I'd seen various fragments and to be honest, I never really got it. And Mm. I, I, I had the idea that, you know, Wells is at his best, I think on film when he's adapting an existing literary source. I think he was just so masterful at writing adaptations of existing works. Uh, But his original scripts, um, there's not too many of them. I mean, Mr. Arcadon was an original script. Big Brass Ring was, uh, but there's not too many of them. And I don't really think that was his best mode because I think there's certain dramatic failings or limitations to him his own original scripts i mean even citizen kane was obviously a collaborative work uh, i think he worked really well when he had to rewrite something no no wait a second citizen kane was written entirely by mank <laughs> entirely by mank according to uh that's what they say uh yeah no um <laughs> Well, knowing Wells, uh, I don't think he would have just shot a Manx screenplay. I'll just say that. But no, that's been put to bed long ago. Yeah. But he, he was great at rewriting things and tweaking things. And I mean, Touch of Evil, for example, I think is an amazing example of taking a not very good screenplay and a not very good novel and just transforming it into this totally brilliant piece of writing. But yeah, so I was a bit I was a bit hesitant about The Other Side of the Wind. I read it and I was like, I don't quite get what he's trying to achieve with this screenplay. I don't really understand it. And then seeing how it was put together, I actually realized, okay, it does work. Mm. His instincts were very good. I mean, I do think there is a sort of limit, a dramatic sort of limitation to the film because not that much really happens dramatically throughout the film. Uh, It's very sort of episodic in its structure. But, you know, that's one criticism. But I think in many other ways, it's a really... Uh, good film. What did you think of it? I was really re- relieved, and I, I, I thought this is this is good enough to to be there, to be out there, mm-hmm. and and in many ways you can't really ask for anything more from an archive, from something that's been put together essentially posthumously. I did think that it sort of suffered from. I I think as you were saying. Wells is best when he's doing an adaptation. I also think it's he's best when he is inhabiting a genre. Mm-hmm. And this was a really contemporary film about, you know, an Antonioni sort of uh, an argument that he seemed to be having with Michelangelo Antonioni. And and so there was a sense of sort of irrelevance. I mean, I kind of know what he's getting at because I've seen Antonioni's films mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. But what if it had been released at the time might have seemed a real oh wow have you seen the new wells he really goes after antonioni mm-hmm. these days it's just like um who cares cr- yeah exactly <laughs> it's a it's a crazy guy out in the desert you know but then you know we can uh, yeah you're right over time films take on new meanings and we look at different aspects of the films uh as time passes. And for me, you know, we're still a little bogged down in the story of how this film was made or not made, the biographical aspects of the autobiographical aspects of it, because people are always trying to, you know, so, you know, even the documentary that accompanied uh, The Other Side of the Wind on Netflix was basically, you know, they're saying, oh, this is Wells talking about himself. And and maybe that's true to some extent. I, I can see it. there's a very obvious autobiographical parallels, but at the same time, I think all that distracts us a little bit from thinking about this as a film. We maybe haven't gotten quite to the point where we can divorce all that baggage from 
just considering the film itself and I, you know and my interest in that uh, that film one of my main interests in the film is the fact that you know wells is a dealing with the whole question of masculinity in this film mm, um, yes. and i've written about that i i've done i looked quite closely into the hemingway aspects uh, the hemingway influence on this uh, which i still don't really think has been looked at in more than a kind of superficial way um but Yes, as I'm interested in Alan Sharp's explorations of masculinity in the 70s, I think Wells was doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, that main character, okay, there may be some obvious autobiographical parallels to Wells' particular position in Hollywood at that time. But more than anything, he was very interested in the macho and the, uh, you know, what was going on with guys like that going around shooting off guns and killing, I don't know, killing elephants and hunting mm. i mean all this kind of stuff so uh yeah i think the conversation about that the other side of the wind will probably keep going for a long time and like all of wells films you know it's released there's a little bit of a conversation at the time it's released and then 10 years later 20 years later 30 years later we turn around and say actually this is a really great film i mean that's happened with touch of evil nobody really rated that in the United States, certainly at the time it was released. And then when it now it's totally established as an all time classic, same of Chimes at Midnight. It's only in recent years, people have acknowledged, oh no, this is one of his great films. Ephra Fake, I think is the same. And at the time of release, nobody paid great deal of attention to them. So I think the other side of the wind will be like that as well. I hope so. I hope so. And I, I must admit, I've not seen it since that one viewing in the cinema. Mm -hmm. So I'd well, like you to need to see it again. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, even at the time, I felt like okay, this is a lot to take in. And I will. I will give credit to the uh, the editor who put this together. That you know, I mean, it's certainly true of Wells in this period that he didn't make too many allowances for the uh, for the ability of the audience to get everything on a first viewing. I mean, mm. Ephra fakes a bit like that. It's very, very complicated in its editing. And, you know, you miss so much on a first viewing. And to the credit of the the other side of the wind reconstructors, they, you know, they kind of followed Wells' cue and they didn't make too many allowances. I mean, there's lots of characters in the other side of the wind. Uh, there's all these relationships going on and you kind of have to just figure it out on the fly. And trust me, the second, third time you watch it, you suddenly realize how it all connects together. And it's much more enjoyable uh, I think uh, the third time, maybe, or the fourth. <laughs> but not everybody has time to uh, watch these films on repeat, but oh, well, I do I, think they're yeah. very rewarding. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I used to watch films. I used to repeat, watch, get video cassettes from the from the local garage, and I would watch them with my family or, or with my friends and then I would watch them in the morning before taking them back and I'd mm -hmm. always re-watch films nowadays there's just so much available out there <laughs> yeah. I feel like if I'm re-watching something I'm missing something else so uh -huh. it's a yeah. new a new malaise right you have a recommended film book for us and I think this relates to what we've been talking about so uh, what is it Matt what's your recommended film book well, it's called Orson Welles and Roger Hill, A Friendship in Three Acts, and it's uh, edited by uh, Todd Tarbox. And this is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of Orson Welles books out there, as you know, and as you said, I wrote one of them, but this is a different kind of book. The best uh, it, one. The best well, one. <laughs> I don't know. Well, according to the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> the um, But this particular book, the, the Welles and Roger Hill book, it's a transcription of conversations these two guys had uh, in the last uh, couple of years of Wells' life, that Roger Hill was Orson's uh, headmaster at school. So he, and then they became lifelong friends. So one of his very oldest friends. And, uh, you know, there are several books of these transcribed conversations, but I quite like this one because there's a sort of, the, the friendship that these two men have is, is clearly runs very deep. And, uh, you know, it's less... Uh, sensationalist than the uh the my lunches with orson book but yeah so i i recommend this book uh because you know there's no better conversationalist than orson wells absolutely absolutely i've never i've never read that i knew about roger hill you know from the various biographies but i will definitely i'll definitely try and search that one out okay matt listen thanks so much for uh spending time with us and talking to us about mosby confidential uh, your book on night moves and the Orson Welles book, which has a long title. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, I don't, just I call it the Orson Welles book. The Orson Welles book. Okay, I'll put. I'll definitely put the title in the, in my roundup at the end of the podcast, and in the show notes. Um, so once again, thanks very much, Matt. No, my pleasure, John. Thanks. Great to talk to you. That was my conversation with Matthew Asprey-Gear, who I called Matt all the way through there because we're, we're good mates uh, after that conversation, I guess. Um, the title of the Orson Welles book, the full title of the Orson Welles book was At the End of the Street in the Shadow, Orson Welles and the City. Uh, his book about Alan Sharp, Arthur Penn, Gene Hackman and Night Moves is called Mosby Confidential, Arthur Penn's Night Moves and the Rise of the Neo-Noir. Uh, and both of those books come highly recommended. And his recommended film book was Conversations Between Orson Welles and Rich Hall, I want to say, the name of his headmaster at school. I can't remember it exactly now. Okay, wait a second. I'm going to stop the recording and then look it up. Now, it was called Orson Welles and Roger Hill, A Friendship in Three Acts. Okay, so that's the recommended book. Thanks. Go to Ellie Atkins for the music, Ali Howard, who helps out with the art. Thank you also all for listening. And until next week, please take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.